this will be the third session out of four of the Simply Jesus uh, Bible study, and it is a life and time of Jesus Christ as a material. Uh, the uh, handouts are coming around. You have two pages tonight. There, there was a few extra scriptures, so you'll have page one and page two of the handouts, lesson three. I do want to remind you that you can teach this Bible study if all you had was this outline. You could teach it. It gives you the scriptures. It gives you the main points that you want to make. And that's really all you need. The main, the teacher's manual is supplemental material that you can add. Um, I also want to remind you that most of you know the story of the life, uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how to tell somebody what they must do to be filled with the Holy Ghost. And that's all this Bible study is. So all of you are qualified already to teach this Bible study. You don't need an advanced degree. You don't need to be a pastor or a youth pastor. You all have enough knowledge now to teach somebody about the, about the life of Jesus Christ and how to be filled with the Spirit. I do also hope that you've noticed how I've tried to bring in the love of God, um, how much Jesus loves us. I, I feel like that people respond to a message of love. Um, and, and of all people, we have the message of love. The Bible says God is love. We're going, to, we're going to see tonight where Jesus said, No greater love hath any man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. So our, our, the core of the, of the message, the gospel, is love. And I, I believe that's what people are looking for. I believe that's what people respond to. So I try to bring that in as much as I can, especially talking to students who may not have, have ever really experienced love in their life. Sadly to say in our culture, they may not have experienced love, um, especially divine love. So that's definitely... A, a path that you can take when you're witnessing to people. Um, we're not trying to sell something. We're not trying to, um, we're in, in, a, in a very real sense, we're not trying to convince them, meaning that we're not trying to debate with them or argue or, you know, trying to be right, trying to prove ourselves right. That's not the way we want to come across at all. We want to just come across with the love of God, and, and people are drawn to that. People are drawn to the love of God. So I would encourage you not to argue with people, not to debate people. I've, as a youth pastor and, and as a young person, I've seen people throughout my life that took that approach and it was never effective, ever. I don't know of anybody that they won to God by debating them and arguing with them, etc. It just makes people defensive. So we want to share the love of God. We want to share the truth in a loving way. And uh, that's what this Bible study does. So without any other uh, announcements or delay, let's get started. And uh, I'll just welcome everybody here. We have Kaylin and Christian and Joshua. So thank you all for being with us tonight. Do you have your Bibles? Yes. Yes. And did you all get a handout when they came around? Um, do we have any handouts left? Yeah. I think we do. All right, everybody's got their coffee, and uh, hey, next week I'm going to try to uh, have a special surprise for you uh, as we close out the... How about beignets? No, that was, <laughs> that was not my surprise, I promise. So, all right, guys, we're going uh, to pick up where we left off. Uh, we've talked about Jesus Christ being born into the world. Uh, God manifest in the flesh. That was lesson one. Lesson two, we talked about how he chose his disciples and how he did m many miracles uh, throughout his ministry. And in fact, the book of John concludes, it says, there were so many, uh, so many miracles that Jesus did that if they tried to write them all down, 
the world could not contain the books uh, of all that Jesus did in his in his earthly ministry. And I, I just love that passage. I love that idea that that there is so much and his life was so full. There were so many things that he did miraculously that the world literally could not contain all of the books if they were written about him. It also tells me that we, as much as we know about Jesus and as much as recording the Gospels, we really don't know everything there is to know. And sometimes if you let your mind wonder, you, you start thinking, you're like, okay, I wonder what, I wonder if Jesus had a set schedule. I wonder if every Monday he did a certain thing. Like, did he go to lunch with his disciples every Monday? You know, did he have you know, breakfast with Lazarus every Tuesday. You, know, you just wonder, there's so many gaps, you know, that we don't have filled in. And you wonder what his life was like on a day in and day out basis. But as we're going to see tonight, he lived his life with a purpose. Everything he did was with a purpose. And uh, he was very focused. He was very dedicated to his call. Uh, and that was to redeem mankind. So let's pick up after Jesus did... Um, many mighty miracles in the midst of the people after he fed the 5,000, he walked on the water, um, he preached uh, in the synagogues. Um, then came a very critical week. It was the week before the Jewish feast called Passover. Now, Passover, very simply, was a Jewish feast where they remembered the time that the uh, children of Israel or the Jewish race was delivered out of Israel and was delivered out of Egypt, and literally the death angel passed over the uh, Jews, but the death angel took the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. And so they call that Passover, and God commanded them that they were to, to celebrate that or commemorate that every year. So this was the feast of the Passover, the time that they were thinking about and celebrating the redemption out of Egypt, the redemption out of Egypt and out of slavery. And so that week began by something that uh, it, it might seem at, at this, it was kind of the pinnacle moment of Jesus' ministry because the Bible says that he, got, he, he uh, got a colt or a donkey and rode through the streets of Jerusalem. And we call this the triumphal entry because as he rode through uh, the streets of Jerusalem, the Bible says that all of the people began to worship him, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they threw their uh, coats down uh, on the ground for him, for the for that colt to walk over. And they took palm branches and began to fan, uh, as they would like like a conquering king that had just come back, uh, you know, from winning a battle. And so it was kind of, in a, in a sense, it was a triumph. It was a pinnacle of uh, of Jesus' ministry. They worshipped him. They they called him King of Kings. But it was very short lived. And by the end of the week, we will see that Jesus was crucified and, and killed and put in a tomb. And that might sound like he went from triumph to defeat. But as we're going to see tonight, he actually, the crucifixion was not a defeat. Because three days later, he resurrected in full triumph, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. So really, what is about to happen here is not a defeat. It is a victory. Um, many people worshipped him. Uh, before his death, but there were others there that despised him and despised his worship. It was the religious establishment. The Bible calls them Pharisees, calls them Sadducees. They were the religious establishment of the day that absolutely hated Jesus because he exposed them for the fraud that they were and the phonies that they were. And so, um, and so they were out to get Jesus, and that is why... Uh, 
That is why ultimately he was put to death. So here's the deal. These people cried out and worshipped Jesus in that moment. And something very uh, important is, is mentioned here. If you'll go to Luke chapter 19 and look at verses 39 through 40. Luke 19, 39 through 40. Jesus makes a very powerful statement. He says that if these people were not to worship him, then something would happen uh, very significant. And I want you all to read this scripture for us, all right? I see, uh, Christian, you are very diligently looking for Luke 19, 39 through 40. Do you have it yet? All right. Kaylin's got it on her cell phone, so I'll, I'll let her read, and then we'll, you'll be next, and then Josh will be next. How about that? 19, 19, verses 39 through 40. You got it? Mm-hmm. Yep. 39 through 40. Got it? I got it. Well, let's, we'll just go around the horn. How about that? We'll like... 39 through 40. Okay. Got it? And some of the Pharisees of, from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered... And said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he come, was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Good, that's perfect. So he said, if these hold their peace, if these stop worshiping me, the very stones will cry out. And, and the point here is this, is that God must be worshipped. He, he, his deity, when humanity comes into contact with his deity... We can't help but worship Him, right? And so He's saying basically that we all have this opportunity to worship. I want you to look at John chapter 4, verse 23. We'll let Christian read this one. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus makes a statement here. And, and the point that I want to make when Christian reads this is that we all, even today, have this opportunity to worship Jesus as God of our own free will. Go ahead, buddy. But the hour cometh now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such as such to worship. Yeah, good, good. So, so Jesus is saying here that, the, that he's ushering in a new time. It's a new covenant. It's a new dispensation that this is the time of the worshippers. And God is looking for people, even today, to worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's important that we have both of those components, that we have His Spirit and that we have His truth. Okay, so Jesus goes through the, through the streets of Jerusalem. They worship Him for, for that moment, except for the ones that are out to get Him, the scribes and the Pharisees, that He turned their world upside down. They were upset with Him. So the next thing that happens is that Jesus calls for... Um, Jesus calls for His disciples to share in the Passover dinner with him. So he calls for them to go get a room. We, we refer to it as the upper room. And uh, they're, there they're going to have the Passover feast together. Down through time, this has become known as the Last Supper because this was the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples before his crucifixion. This was kind of his last moments with them. And so this is significant because... Jesus tells them in this time, he says, this is the last time I'm going to eat with you. The next time that we have 
a meal together will be in the new kingdom. And that's the kingdom that has not even come yet. That's after the rapture of the church when we all go to meet Jesus in the air and we're with Him in heaven. And we will actually have a meal with Him in heaven. And that's we'll talk about that at a later time. So at the Last Supper, Jesus prepares His disciples. He tells them as best He can what's about to happen. He says, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of my enemies and they're going to take me and they're going to put me to death. And of course the disciples were stunned by this news. We have to kind of put ourselves in their shoes. We have to understand they'd spent three and a half years with Him. He was their leader. He had taught them awesome things. He had told them that there was a new kingdom coming. He told them that there was going to be a church that would be established. He, he, they may, some of them may have even thought that he was talking about a political upheaval where they would actually overthrow the Romans that had them in bondage, had the Jews in bondage. So they had high hopes. They had high expectations. And when he started talking about the fact that he would be removed from them forcibly and would be put to death, this left a lot of questions in their mind. It left a lot of uncertainty. No doubt they were thinking, some of them were probably thinking to themselves like, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I signed up for this. You know, I didn't know when I left all to follow Jesus that it was coming to this. I thought we were going to be victorious. So you can imagine it was a very, very dark time. It was probably a very somber moment. It was probably a very, um, you know, just a very serious time where they had to do some soul searching about what was coming. Jesus predicted at, this, at the Last Supper, He says, one of you is going to betray me. And ultimately it was realized that it was Judas, or that he, he, he pointed out that it was going to be Judas Iscariot, who was the treasurer of the disciples, that would be the one to uh, betray him into the hands of his enemy. And in fact, uh, we know from Scripture that Judas sold Jesus to the, um, to the scribes and Pharisees for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. And it's amazing to me, if you go back to Zechariah, in the Old Testament, we're not going to read it right now, but in the book of Zechariah, the prophet prophesied that Jesus would be sold in, uh, sold, and the blood money or the blood price would be 30 pieces of silver. And it came to pass, hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, when Jesus was sold by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus also predicted something else. After Judas... After it came to light that Judas would betray him, the other disciples were like, there's no way, you know, we're going to stick with you to the end, Jesus. We would never do that. And Peter, the apostle Peter, was the most adamant. He's like, no matter what happens, Jesus, I am with you till the end. You can count on me. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Peter, before the rooster crows, which meant when the rooster crows at dawn the next morning, he said, you will have denied me three times. Of course, Peter was devastated by this news and he swore that that would never happen. And we're going to see in just a minute that that actually did happen just as Jesus predicted. Um, now, Jesus didn't just leave His disciples with bad news. He didn't just leave them with the idea that He was going to die and that they were going to be scattered, the Bible says. He actually told them, He said, there's something better happening. He said, that I'm going to send My Comforter to you or I'm going to send My Spirit to you to comfort you at my absence. And that's a very powerful promise because not only was that promise to the disciples, but it was also to you and I that we can also have the Comforter or the Holy Spirit living in us. So let's go to John chapter 14, verse 1, Joshua. And let's read John chapter 14, verse 1, where Jesus talks about the Comforter that's coming in His name. 
All right, you got it? John 14 and 1. John 14 and 1. Chapter 14, verse 1. Yes, you got it. Good job. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Okay. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go, I go to prepare a place for you. All right. Thank you, Josh. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Now, uh, Kaylin, if you'll stay in that same chapter and go to verse 18. John chapter 14, verse 18. Jesus, what he was saying here is that he was revealing himself to be, to be their comforter and that he was coming back to fill them with his spirit. So John 14 and 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me. Because I live, ye shall also live. Good. Thank you. So, so he's talking about, yes, I'm going away. Yes, I'm departing. But I'm going to send my comforter to you to be filled with my spirit. Let's go, Christian, if you'll go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Kind of in the book of John tonight, aren't we? And let's look at 37 through 39, if you'll read that. Um, in the last day, that great day of these... Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost is was not yet given because that God was not yet glorified. Good. All right. So he's speaking here of his spirit is the point. The comforter has come, or he, the comforter is coming, and it's his spirit living inside of us. So I want to make that point. All right. So after the Last Supper, uh, Jesus and his disciples move on to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here Jesus prays, um, out of his humanity. So remember we talked about early on that, that Jesus was 100% human. He's also 100% God. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see his humanity praying as a person, as a human being, as a man. The flesh of Jesus Christ did not want to go to the cross. Does that make sense? Like Just like the, the he, he knew that it was going to be hard. He knew that it was going to be tough. He knew it was going to be painful. He knew it was going to cost him his life. And so the flesh of, of Jesus had to submit itself to the will of God. And so he prays at Gethsemane. He says, I wish this cup of suffering would pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So I'm about not my will, but God's will be done. In other words, I submit myself, my humanity, my flesh, I submit myself to the will of my Father, and I will do what it is I have come to do. Let's go to Matthew 26 and 39. I want you to see that. I want you to read it. We're back over to Josh, I think. Matthew 26, 39. And while he's getting that, while they're in the garden praying, Judas shows up 
and betrays Jesus Christ with a kiss. He had told the high priest, he said, the one that I kiss will be the one. Be Jesus. Because remember, it's dark. They're in the garden. There's a lot of people around. There was a mob that came with Judas and the priest. So he comes and he says, the one that I kiss is him. So he goes to Jesus, kisses him on the cheek, and they arrest him there in the garden. You got it, Josh? Uh, Matthew 26, verse 39. Matthew 26, verse 39. You got it? Yeah, there you go. And we're going to go down to verse 39. Good job. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh my thought, oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not not as I will, but as thou wilt. Good. So that's where he was praying, not my will, but yours be done. Kalen, if you'll get Luke twenty-two forty-seven, let's read about Judas betraying him with a kiss, and then we'll go from there. Right there. Are you in Luke 22, verse yeah. 47? 47. Oops. Yeah. Just said seven. That's okay. Okay, okay, there. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he, he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near un, unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? When they which were about God him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite right with the sword? That, you can stop right there. That, that's it. Good. Thank you, Caitlin. So he betrays Jesus with a kiss. That's the point that I wanted to make. So they arrest Jesus. They bring him before the leaders of the people, the leaders of the Jews, and they put him on trial. And ultimately, through the night, uh, they put they, they sentenced Jesus to death. And I, I want to mention, without going into a lot of detail, if you go and you, and you study closely uh, the, the trial of Jesus that night, so much of it was actually illegal. It was illegal under Roman law. It was illegal under Jewish law. They, they did it wrong all the way around. They, 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 just, they were in such a frenzy and so uh, determined to put him to death. I guess you could say it kind of reached a, a tipping point. Uh, that that they just they just went ahead and, and and sentenced him to die without obeying the full uh, course of law that they should have. And to me, that's an interesting point. To me, it's very interesting that Jesus um, was unjustly not only was he unjustly accused, but he was unjustly sentenced and un unjustly condemned. Yet he went and died in our place anyway. Um, during the course of all this, uh, the the man Pontius Pilate, who was the ruler of the Jews at the time. He felt very bad about what was happening. He, he really, I think, deep down, probably wanted to let Jesus go. And so, but he feared the Jews. He feared his political position. He didn't want to do anything to upset the apple cart. So he, uh, he told him, he said, look, it's customary at the Passover that I release to you a prisoner. 
would you like me to release Jesus? Or, or no. And they said, no, we want you to release this other guy. It was a guy by the name of Barabbas who was a robber. He was also in jail. He had done some bad stuff. And so Pilate had to release to them Barabbas instead of Jesus. So Jesus stays condemned. He stays sentenced to death. To death and they, uh, they continue to put him on trial. Um, if you'll go to Mark 15 and 15, Christian, uh, he was scourged by the Roman soldiers. And we'll go to the book of Isaiah in just a second. It says that Jesus took the, this beating or this scourging for our sickness, for our healing. So when he died, he didn't only die for our sins, but he took a, a, a brutal beating on his back for our healing. Go ahead and read Mark chapter 15, verse 15. Got it? Getting close. Got it. And so, Pilate, Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barbaras unto, unto them and delivered Jesus when he is scourged him. Scourged. So scourged him and would be crucified. Now, scourging, they, they beat him. Pro it was probably a whip that had nine cords on it. And in the end of each cord was woven shards of glass and bone and brick and stone. And it was, you can imagine, and, and so they, and they beat him, they, they struck him 39 times with that um, cord. And you can imagine what that would do um, to, to your back. It just, he was absolutely, I'm, I'm sure he was close to death, really, after that. But it was with a purpose, it was a reason. Josh, you awake, buddy? You with us? Okay. There was a reason that he did it. And I'm going to read it to you out of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and 5. And then Josh will get you to read the next one. It says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So he took care not only of the sin problem, he took care of the sickness problem too. Our, our souls and our bodies. <coughs> Excuse me, there was a reason he did that. Josh, if you were, were, I told you we're all in the book of John tonight. Go to John 15, verse 13. Understand while he's getting that, John 15 and 13, that everything Jesus did was out of love. He could... He, he could have avoided all of this. He didn't have to do it. But he voluntarily did this for our sake because he loved us so much. John 15, verse 13. I want you to read what, what the Bible says about how much Jesus loves us in John 15, verse 13. Greater love hath no man do this than a man lay down his life for his friends. Isn't that interesting? No greater love have a man in this, then he lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He voluntarily laid down his life for us. And he says, there, you, there's no greater love than that. That's, that's the highest form of love that you can imagine. So Jesus was crucified. They took him and they nailed him to a cross. This was the form of Roman punishment at the time. It was an execution. Um, what we call the electric chair or lethal injection to execute criminals. The Romans used a cross. Um, to do. It was a very cruel uh, form of, of, of execution because you didn't die quickly. 
uh, it, it was a very slow and painful death. The way that you, you were put on the cross, it put pressure on your abdomen and put pressure on your lungs because you tend to, you, you know, gravity pulls you down. And it would be hard to breathe. And so then you'd push yourself up to try to catch a breath of air, but you couldn't stay in that position very long because of the way you're, you're very precariously perched there on the cross. And so then you'd have to let go of that and come back down and you would you begin to suffocate again and you'd push yourself back up. So it was a very slow suffocation is the bottom line what it was. Um, on top of that, Jesus had already been beaten. He'd already had the scourging. Um, they, they actually pierced him with nails. Um, so his, his body was already no doubt in a state of shock. No doubt it was very much uh, pain wrecked and um, probably... You know, he was he was probably in and out of consciousness probably at that point, I would think, just from a, a physiological point of view. There, there are some books that have been written, if you want to read further. Uh, there's some medical doctors that, that have gone through the steps of the crucifixion and tell you what happens at each stage and how the body begins to shut down. In Jesus' case, uh, they crucified him at a place called Golgotha which simply meant the place of the skull. And if you look at pictures of Golgotha, it does, it's a rock or a mountain that looks like a skull. That's how it got the name. It's a place of death is what it was. Um, it's interesting, too, that uh, the Bible says that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers that crucified him, threw dice to see which one would get his garment. And, and the Bible says that it was a garment without seam, which... In, in their culture meant that it was a valuable garment. It was a garment that would have been pricey. Uh, you know, it was something somebody wanted. In other words, it wasn't rags. It wasn't, you know, hand-me-down or, you know, something that nobody would want. It was, a, it was you know, it was, a, you know, it was an Armani suit or something, I guess you could say. Uh, there was something nice, and so they wanted it. And so they, they rolled dice or cast dice for his garment. The, the interesting thing about that and the reason I bring that up is in that moment of divine redemption, in that moment of the greatest love, display of love anybody's ever seen, these guys were so distracted by something so materialistic and so insignificant that they missed everything that was going on and the, the true implication of Jesus dying for our sins. But you know what? The same is true today, isn't it? Isn't that true? We, we tend to miss the divine love of God and the awesome price that Jesus paid, and the amazing redemption He offers all, to all of us, we miss it because so many times we're distracted by temporary things, materialistic things that don't matter in eternity. They're going to be here today and gone tomorrow. They don't, they don't mean anything when you compare them with what God is offering us through His divine love. And, and it's amazing to me that 2,000 years later we're still struggling with that same distraction that these soldiers had at the at the very site where Jesus died. When he died, and we're concluding, when Jesus died, he was the sacrifice for the sins of the world and bridged the gap between God and humanity. So remember, remember, he died during the Passover, during the time that the Jews commemorated being set free from Egyptian bondage. It was significant that Jesus died on the Passover because he was redeeming mankind from sin and its bondage. And he was bridging that gap between God and man. So, as I mentioned to you at the beginning, this, though, though it seemed like a dark day, though it seemed like a, a defeat, though it seemed like Jesus was down for the count, 
As we're going to see next week, in three days he rose from the grave. And this actually became the most victorious moment of all time. It was a victory and not a defeat. He rose from the dead to offer salvation to all who will accept him and call on him and ask for forgiveness. And I want to, I want to conclude with two scriptures. They're found in Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, Kaylin, if you'll read 22, and Christian, if you'll read 28. These are two beautiful scriptures that show us without the shedding of blood, there is no remissions of sins. So Jesus shed his blood for the remission of our sins. And then we're going to see not only that, but he is our mediator, or he is the go between between us and God. So if you'll read 9 and 22, Kaylin, chapter 9, verse 22, and Christian's going to read chapter 9, verse 28. Almost all things are by the blood purged, law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So that's why Jesus had to die. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But His blood removes our sins. And then, Christian, you're going to get Hebrews. You're getting close. Pass it up. Pass it up. There you go. 9 and 28. You're doing good. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that thought on all that look for him shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. All right. So Christ was that sacrifice. He was that blood covenant. So that wraps up lesson three. Next week, what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about how Jesus rose from the grave. We're going to talk about the message that he left with his disciples, and he said, "I want you to establish the church with a very important message." And then we're going to see how that message was played out on the day of Pentecost and how you and I can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for ourselves, that comforter that Jesus said he would send.